Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined again by Ben Simon for our April Journal Club podcast. How are you, Ben? I'm very good and I've been looking forward to this one. I had a, a relatively boring week staying at home this week. Indeed, we've got a couple of papers that I'm going to do about deception and you're going to get a little bit more technical and a little bit more researchy. That's correct. I'm trying to push myself away from those debriefing articles. We'll see how we go. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I'm going to start with our first reading. This is a pair of articles that are connected through their title, although quite different in their format. And the first of these is from Advances in Simulation. Uh, it's by Guillaume Alinea uh, and Dennis Oriot. And the title is Simulation-Based Education, Deceiving Learners with Good Intent. And that is hot off the press this year in Advances in Simulation. The background that they state in the paper is that Simulation can be an effective way to learn, but we know that there is a gap between simulation and reality. In fact, there's lots of gaps. There's physical gaps, environmental gaps, gaps in the task we give our learners, uh, gaps in the roles that they portray. And they use a term in this paper uh, that talk about these gaps as being X-reality, which is not something that trips off my tongue, but I, uh, I could see the way they use that terminology in the paper. And then they went on to say, look, we actually use deception all the time in simulation. And in fact, when we try and portray something that is simulated and pretend it's real, ultimately that is a kind of deception. Just think about a uh, a nurse acting as a nurse in the scenario, but not exactly the same nurse that he or she is in the real world. Just a pretend ventilator or a pretend monitor or moulage even is a kind of deception. So the authors make the point that we actually use deception all the time for learning effect, but they call it um, justifiable deception or benevolent deception. Uh, they then go on to talk about a definition of deception and uh, how it can be unsurprisingly perceived negatively, particularly if there's a mismatch between people's understanding about what's fair about this uh, deception. And they go on to elaborate further about the ethics of deception and say that uh, it's okay if and because uh, there's clarity, um, it's in the interest of learning, and it's contracted, i.e. If, if it's deception, at least the learners know it's deception and they know that the monitor isn't going to be a real one and so our contract with them is one where we explain it. So I thought, Ben, this was um, important because they're saying, sure, there's more deception than we think, uh, but not all of it is negative. And I think that's kind of shifting the goalposts, I would have thought, on how I would have defined deception up until now. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I had some discomfort. Uh, I appreciated that the authors here were really trying to broaden our perspective of what deception could be uh, and the ways we manipulate our sort of shared reality when we're doing a simulation. But I felt like potentially for me, or at least the way my head works, I do feel like there's a difference between fiction and the fiction contract and active deception. And I felt that potentially by broadening this definition this far, it potentially was getting less useful in terms of how to interrogate that concept and how to use it effectively. 
Mm-hmm. Well, hold that thought because it's going to come up more in our second paper. But I had some um, agreement with that sentiment. Uh, but then interestingly, and I guess this is uh, related to the writing of the paper, it took a little bit of a left turn from this uh, discussion of deception and the definitions around that and the ethics of it. And now sort of turn the attention to the fact that, well, this deception is part of a much bigger concept, which is fidelity, and not actually mentioned in the title, but ended up being a very big part of the paper. Maybe everyone's just scared to put fidelity in the title of their paper these days. But it's essentially the, the authors actually present a relatively new model of simulation fidelity elements. And we've seen a few of these over time. Uh, but as with many of the models, they think about different dimensions. So there's the sort of physical realism dimensions and the two there are the sort of environmental fidelity, like how real is the clinical equipment and the monitoring and the environment in which this simulation occurs. Uh, The patient fidelity, which is another aspect of physical realism. Are we talking about a simulated patient actor or a plastic mannequin? Uh, But then they extend this to say that there's two other kinds of uh, fidelity, which are more in this sort of psychological and sociologic realm. And the first that they define is semantical, uh, which I guess at its essence means it relates to how we make meaning of words or symbols. And uh, so that, again, is how is the conversation around this um, simulation uh, helping us to see it as real. And the other one is phenomenal, which doesn't quite mean the same as fantastic, uh, but phenomenal as in pertaining to our emotions, beliefs and self-aware cognitive states. So uh, I think really I would have liked to see this in the title to know that really where we ended up with this paper was a, a model of fidelity that helps us understand where we might have certain amounts of deception, so-called, uh, in the portrayal of the simulation uh, and including the conversations around it both before and afterwards. And uh, I suppose it just challenges us to think about um, should we reconceptualize deception as sometimes necessary and benevolent, albeit still with, and there's quite a bit in this paper, um, a, a warning and a caution about the fact that uh, it can then move into the area of distrust and that's more problematic. Agreed, Vic. And I think um, the article actually surprised me a little bit about uh, almost how and I'm exaggerating here, but that the sort of needle was pointing more to pro as deception um, as being a benevolent act in sim. And I guess for me that uh, hasn't sort of reflected on my sort of experiences with the negative impact that sometimes a well-intentioned but ultimately upsetting episode of deception in a sim can be. And I think to me that probably reflects the fact that by broadening that definition, actually they're saying lots of things that we do all the time are perfectly benevolent, which I agree with, but uh, I guess that's sort of the line in the sand that I had trouble getting over here. Yeah, and we see that all the time even when we're not trying to do it, when somehow our gap between reality and simulation ends up being a bit big and somehow the learners perceive that we've deceived them uh, and not just honestly been unable to close that gap. So I think you see that loss of trust very fast, or I feel that I have seen that in the past. And uh, But you're right, it also, this uh, justifiable I think is important 
for instance, things like time compression. And I think that is, can be quite problematic if you say, well, we're making it shorter because then I'll make it harder for a particular learner level or, or, or the converse. And once again, I think you start to get into some tricky territory when you're starting to think about uh, what unintended messages our learners getting about uh, either the intent or the natural history of uh, some of these clinical encounters. Alrighty, well, where does that leave us? Uh, in our next paper, a somewhat different approach to the concept of deception and uh, is an empirical study uh, looking at anesthesia residents and the concept of speaking up. So the title of this paper is Deception in Simulation-Based Education, a Randomised Control Trial of the Effect of Deliberate Deception on the Performance of Anesthesia Trainees. And this is by Friedman and Co. Uh, in Anesthesia 2022. And uh, the background to this, they really pick up where the uh, Alinea article leaves off. Deception is integral to SIM, but deliberate deception undermines a basic tenet of the learning contract that the simulation facilitator will let the learner know what aspects of the SIM are real. And I think that gets back to the point you were making, Ben, about the difference between fiction and fiction contract. And I think that's a good way of saying it. Uh, and they give the example and saying, well, if you simulate some interpersonal conflicts where the learners don't realise that that is the purpose of the sim, that is a deliberate deception. And it obviously carries a risk of harm and distrust. And not just in that moment. I think one of the issues that I have with this is the more deception that goes on in other people's sims, the harder it is when those people come to my simulations for me to establish trust because they've been tricked left, right and centre in all these other simulations that they've done, uh, whether through poor delivery and reality gap or whether through just trickery because people thought it was funny, challenging, something to do at the time or well-intended making it hard for them, um, but they end up feeling distrustful. So what did they actually do? Well, what was their question? They wanted to examine the impact of deception on learners' performance during a life-threatening simulation scenario. That's what they said in their uh, end of their introduction. So this was a randomised control trial. They took two groups of anaesthesia trainees and these groups uh, participated in a simulated crisis in which there was a consultant physician or attending physician, depending on where you live, uh, that made a clearly wrong decision and the trainees had the opportunity to challenge it within the sim. So there was a non-deception group and this group was told that the consultant was, was acting as part of a study on teamwork, which was basically true. So they would get the idea that perhaps they were playing a certain role. And then there was a deception group who were told that that same consultant was actually a subject in the study and the purpose of the study was to compare behaviour in the real world versus the sim world. So the sim involved deception and the study involved deception. So, <laughs> they, um, they then went on to uh, these groups then participated in what was described as a tightly scripted, can't intubate, can't oxygenate crisis. And for the non-critical care people, you've probably still heard of these because they're very common in simulation. This is where you really are life or death situations and you can't get oxygen into the patient in any way, shape or form. Now, how did they measure the outcomes? They used this thing called a modified advocacy inquiry scale, which was a new one for me. And basically, it's a scoring system for communication in a crisis. And these trained observers watch you in the simulation and you get a score for uh, from one, which is you do nothing despite the consultant making this mistake and the patient dying, up to six, which is the highest, which is just walking in and taking over. 
And so in between one and six, there's a whole range of raising concerns and saying, oh, excuse me, um, up to more assertive kinds of um, uh, advocacy inquiry. So uh, you with me so far, Ben? I am. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I guess one thing I did want to highlight is I loved how much you raised that the challenge of inserting deception in one sim and its impact on really, really, really longitudinal psych safety for simulation as a brand and experience in general, because we really are lumped together there. So I'll let you get back to your main point, but uh, I just wanted to heartily yeah, no, agree. I could, with that. I could talk with that point forever. And our psychological safety study did actually um, uh, show that. And when people, we were asking people about their psychological safety coming into the sim, many of them told horror stories that were still clearly recovering from at sim at other places. Maybe they go to other places and tell the same stories about us. I hope not. But they certainly told us stories about many um, bad experiences they had had at sim that we had to often spend a long time uh, recovering from. Anyway, back to the study. What did they find? So remember they had um, two groups. There were 44 participants in total, 22 in each group, uh, and the results were the deception group. So don't forget this was the group um, that had been told the consultant was a study in the subject, um, sorry, a subject in the study. Uh, they only scored a four on this uh, modified advocacy inquiry scale, whereas the non-deception group, who, as they say, more like the real world, um, they actually scored a five. So they were much more likely to challenge people if they thought they were um, uh, acting in the sim and it's more like a real world. So, and the other thing that they used as a measure was the number of challenges, which was statistically uh, different as well. So 18 in the deception group and 27 in the non-deception group. So it's very interesting to know what to do with this. And you were saying that was very neat and you quite liked it. I was saying I think it tells us something we already know, which is people don't speak up uh, when they recognise there's a hierarchy and there's some risk in them doing that. But uh, you, you didn't. You, you thought that was still an important finding then? Well, I guess I had some uh, real sort of – I enjoyed the philosophy of this paper more than you other okay. kind of things. So uh, I guess for me I felt like the authors really went with this idea of like, look, we've had lots of hypothetical theoretical chats about these concepts, but there's really no objective data on this issue. So we want to start getting some uh, active data rather than just relying on theoretical frameworks, which I thought they put really nicely in this phrase where they say, we argue that unless deception can be demonstrated to modify learner behaviour, then ethical concerns should preclude its use. And so I kind of just like that researchy lens to it where they go, no, no, let's not just rely on these frameworks. Let's actually test and see what we find. Um, and I thought there were some reasonably clever design choices here in terms of the study itself, the fact that they used a Caucasian male for all of the sims to eliminate gender bias and allow the research to just focus on the impact of that one difference. Um, the follow-up with the trainees that showed by revealing the deception during the debrief um, that they actually rediscussed consent at that point uh, in the study itself. And I also thought there were some great concepts in the discussion. So points like um, they, they highlighted that it appears that professional cultures override even the national culture since hierarchy is so deeply ingrained in medicine that it trounces even cultural differences in the ability to challenge authority. 
And then their call out about the impotent. <laughs> We're talking about a lot of different fidelities today, but they talked about sociological fidelity and how SIM frequently ignores the impact of hierarchy, power relations, and interprofessional conflict, despite their huge impacts on interprofessional communication, collaborative, and teamwork. And so, and I also found it just quite interesting the fact that actually when people were asked afterwards, they weren't upset at all. They're actually kind of sad. Uh, the group that didn't get deceived were kind of sad that they didn't get to have as intense an experience. So uh, I enjoyed being challenged by that a little bit. Mm-hmm. All right, maybe you're swaying me towards this uh, more positive view of that. It's uh, nice when sometimes we disagree. I worry sometimes. That's true, that's true, that's true, <laughs> yeah. And I do think that, and I'm not sure that it's still justified, but I do think deception is needed for this sociological fidelity. And I think simulating power structures and hierarchies is quite hard. I still think you can uh, have people role play that and be clear that that is, and they can have a very intense experience that presents them with challenges in speaking up that they need to navigate, which I think is that is a learning exercise. Because I suppose the bit that I'm still not convinced about is the necessity to do this when we have so much evidence from the real world that this happens all the time yeah 100 and the question yeah the question isn't isn't whether it happens yeah and for me i would never run this as an actual sim like I, i i do not think that this is all necessary and i don't think it's appropriate and i would instead frame it as we're going to do a role playing exercise and you can practice the art of speaking up in an uncomfortable situation and we might even do it a few times and gradually dial up the discomfort or the level of pushback and you can try some different techniques but this is a science lab and we're going to just play it out so that you've done it for the first time and not in real life when it's really hard i wouldn't do it like that but as a research question i guess i found that interesting all right. Um, <laughs> what they say about the value of this uh, is that this simulation model can be used to test the effective educational interventions that teach trainees to speak up. That actually made me more worried than when they hadn't said that because I think that then they're saying is that you have these trainees, they're clearly scared to speak up, and then they do the two-hour online module on speaking up, and I'm probably being a little bit reductionist here and then they enter into this sim as proof that that education worked and I think I've got a couple of issues with that um, and that is that you know I don't know that we really can capture those things but yet again it situates the responsibility and the agency for speaking up to be with the juniors why haven't we got the people they're speaking up against in the sim and measuring the opposite which is people's ability to speak up to them or their ability to encourage people to speak up to them. I would like to see that study, some deception on the part of uh, people acting as trainees who were or weren't speaking up. A hundred percent. I agree. It is admittedly a lot harder to get attendings into the sim lab. I think that would be better to say. (laughs) (laughs) Especially if we tell them we're deceiving them. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Okay. Deception uh, could just yeah. be pizza. That there is no pizza. It's a sim. <laughs> the doors are locked. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to stick with some very cautionary attitudes towards deception, but uh, I will agree with you that this was well done, and it definitely showed something that we know is true, uh, but in an elegant way. Uh, very diplomatic of you, Vic. I appreciate. <laughs> All right, I'll let you get on to something a little bit more uh, 
uh, technological. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I looked at two quite different articles this week. So the the first one is called The Physiologic and Emotional Effects of 360-Degree Video Simulation on Head-Mounted Display versus In-Person Simulation, a non-inferiority randomized controlled trial, and it's by Thomas Caruso et al. and published in Simulation in Healthcare. And I think it'd be fair to say, Vic, that we have talked about VR simulations a reasonable amount on Simulcast. Uh, I think you'd be aware that I'm a relative cynic with regard to our current level of technology and the sophistication available. But I feel like we're also in agreement that there's some clear benefits for replicability and efficiency at a certain point. But that so far, I haven't had a sort of VR healthcare sim experience that has brought the complexity I've desired for my own training, but I think there's definitely been some cool software that shows some really great mental rehearsal of basic concepts. Mm. And so with my own kind of biases in mind, let's look at this article, which I thought took an interesting approach to trying to validate some aspects of virtual sim. And essentially the authors here are arguing that there is a paucity of research on the affective effects of simulation when completed in a head-mounted display, which is basically one of those sort of VR headsets, um, particularly when used to teach communication skills. So they're kind of drawing some connections between emotional activation and learning, and they make some references to back that up. And then they want to compare that to how that would be with the same scenario run as a regular sim. So the authors argue that these affective responses during learning are important, and I do like that they acknowledge they can have beneficial and detrimental effects on learning and behaviour change. And it really brought me back to your recent podcast with Vicky LeBlanc, where they you know, acknowledge that activation of the sympathetic nervous system releases stress hormones that might actually worsen memory or make you code in memory the wrong part of the learning. Um, but they do think it's worth sort of measuring because they do know that some arousals during learning experience uh, can be linked to better recall. So the article kind of provides a nice overview of how that technology has evolved over the last 30 years to develop quantitative methods for analysing emotional states, such as uh, PET imaging and respiratory sinus arrhythmia. And in this article, uh, they use a number of gadgets to kind of measure people's parasympathetic and sympathetic responses. Now, there are a lot of double negatives in this article. Uh, but basically what we have here is kind of a classical non-inferiority trial, which to me is, so I'm going to check my understanding with you, Vic, but when we're, we're not trying to prove that VR simulation in a headset is better at generating emotion than a traditional sim. We're trying to prove that VR sim through a headset isn't worse at generating emotion in a traditional sim. And spoiler alert, it looks like it's a little bit worse. Uh, would be my take on. Did you have anything to add? There? Yeah, and and I think just to sort of say, well, why do people do these studies? It's usually when we're not trying to say it's better, but this new uh, option, as long as it's no worse, is often cheaper, simpler, or whatever. Think, well, you could stay in hospital for this three-day infusion of a drug, and that's great. It gives you a certain impact. But we've got this one tablet you can take as well. We don't need to prove that tablet's better than the three-day infusion. We, if it, as long as it's no worse, it's clearly a better treatment because people can take it and go home. So in this sim, they look at the parasympathetic signals, the sympathetic signals, and the participants' self-reported emotion at baseline and after the intervention. 
And how do they do this incredibly complicated thing? Well, they took a nice interdisciplinary mix of 115 healthcare providers. They made sure that participants don't get motion sickness, and then they randomized them into two groups. And both groups experienced the same scenario as passive observers. Uh, so the scenario is there's a crying baby mannequin in a crib who's had a tourniquet mistakenly left on during a procedure, and the father gets angry at the nurse. The nurse calls a physician. The physician aims to de-escalate further, and at the self-described climax of the sim, the father makes a sudden move as if he's going to strike the physician. Uh, and I will just pause <laughs> pause there because I can't help myself and, and highlight that if there was parasympathetic and sympathetic uh gadgets detecting my own heart rate and activation at that point, I'd have to say I got pretty frustrated again uh, in terms of the hidden curriculum and the signals we give healthcare providers again and again. And I'm really not quite sure why the idea of a child has been harmed and the parent becomes a physical threat is a narrative that's continuously perpetuated in healthcare sim, um, despite it being really an incredibly rare event in real life. Um, I do think that it was chosen particularly because it was a activating experience and they were specifically trying to highlight emotion. So I get that. Uh, I just wish there had potentially been a way that didn't perpetuate negative stereotypes of healthcare um, consumers. Yeah, well, I would. you can rant on about that as long as you like because I happen to agree with you. Uh, I think the other thing is that by choosing something with so much polarity, I feel like that also makes the validity of their findings a little bit more questionable because that's not our usual simulation. Our usual simulations have a uh, yeah, much more middle-of-the-road affective experience for learners. And so I think if we were truly trying to discern how much uh, parasympathetic activation there were, maybe seeing a patient who has chest pain or a child who has a uh, shortness of breath and needs an asthma treatment, um, it's going to be a much more middle of the road and probably more realistic thing to try and discern this difference for. So I, I agree with you both in terms of the signals, but also wonder about putting something so extreme in from the research point of view. Yeah, no, agreed. So uh, the two groups are sort of randomised to either passively watch this sim as a pre-recorded 360-degree video in a VR headset or as single observers in a room in real life. Um, and after the sim, a physician for both groups uh, gave a 20-minute education session on de-escalation. And the participants in both groups were wearing these two types of biometric sensors, which I did find quite interesting. So there was a chest one that measured the parasympathetic nervous system activity using ECG signals combined with your respiratory pattern. And then there was a two-fingered device that recorded your skin conductance levels in response to sweat gland activation. So less fancily, they also you know, got people to fill out those uh, validated self-assessment surveys and, and tested their longitudinal recall of the important learning points. So overall, I thought this was a pretty sophisticated and fancy study that they clearly put a lot of effort into identifying any sort of difference in the emotional state change in these two, in these two groups. And I guess what did they find? Well, uh, the HMD was not non-inferior to the face-to-face -face sim. So pragmatically speaking, 
the emotional signals that the face-to-face group were getting was slightly higher in every way. Uh, But there were also measured changes in the virtual group too. So I guess to me, if we had our drug trial hat on, like you were saying, Vic, we can sort of conclude that passive observation of a virtual headset sim is a little bit inferior in some ways to -to face-to-face passive observation of this role-played scenario. But if we put our educators hat on, we can still say, well, we do have evidence that both of these choices generate an emotional signal and activation and that one is generating more, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the other one is the wrong choice, particularly when we think about the opportunities for replication and um, sort of mass distribution. You're nodding. Well, yes, and just for me that's not enough to think that it's just fine for everyone to sit at home and put their headset on instead of coming and joining and participating with a group. Uh, and I know that's not what they compared, but I feel like that's the be- if they had found that, that would be the beginning of justifying that we don't need to go to the understandably resource-intensive way of running face-to-face simulations. I did kind of wonder, well, maybe I didn't wonder from a research point of view, but I thought both of these groups were observers. And I thought, well, why didn't they have another arm of people who were actually in the sim? Because for both of these people, it was a bit like watching a movie. Only one was with a VR headset, one was with you actually on the set. Uh, but no one was actually participating in the sim and having to react to this uh, parent or to other team members or actually experience it. And I feel like then we might start to get the kind of comparisons that we might find uh, more useful it probably, though, will end up with an even stronger signal towards the uh, face-to-face participation, which wouldn't surprise me. But uh, And I don't know that that means that we would never use VR headsets. I just know that it's going to be for different learning objectives than the ones that we are currently doing team-based face-to-face simulation for. Yeah, 100%. I got, I got the feeling that that was chosen specifically so you could replicate very specifically um, the sim in both types of methodology, but I agree it did take out a very significant chunk of what makes a simulation a simulation. And this is interesting, the second article I've read recently where uh, something's described as a simulation, which to me is actually just a 360-degree video that people can watch, and I guess that to me Mm. is a video recording of someone else's simulation, but I I don't know that it's the same as observing even a sim or, or participating in one. Yeah, and I mean, we are aware of all that uh, work that others, Stefa Regan and others have done saying observer roles do matter. Uh, but I think that's a slightly different question to what's being asked here. Yeah, agreed. Um, so look, from an article perspective for me, I thought there were some smart choices here. They had a nice narrow research question. They answered it well and they published their negative finding or their double negative finding, uh, which I thought was great. And uh, they closed the article with what I thought were some very fair and appropriate conclusions without some overreach of their findings uh, and that they hopefully aim to explore this in more depth in future articles and, and sort of to study what the impact on learning in that kind of activation actually means. Mm. Lovely. Thank you. And then lastly, we're going to shift gears quite significantly and move on to current research priorities in healthcare simulation, the results of a Delphi study. And this is by Nicholas Anton et al. and published in Simulation in Healthcare again. 
So this article is essentially reporting on the results of a modified Delphi study that aimed to find expert consensus on research priorities for the healthcare simulation community. And I nominated it for discussion because I think these kind of big vision documents are so important for the development of any type of academic community, even if they can sometimes feel a little bit dry. And I guess there's quite a lovely introduction to this one. It could have been a pretty dry article, but it really reflects on a bit of history by exploring two different seminal publications or vision documents by two different Davids, David Gabba in 2004 and David Cook in 2010. And it explores how those articles were both important and remarkably prescient, while also acknowledging that probably relying on two Davids alone is not really sufficient to steer an entire research community. So the rest of the article basically outlines the methods and results of this modified Delphi arranged through the Society for Simulation in Healthcare. And if you're not familiar with the Delphi study, it's essentially surveying a bunch of people repeatedly in an effort to obtain some consensus on a particular topic. You do one survey, you synthesize it, you send it out that, you get feedback, you synthesize the results. And each time less and less people reply to your emails in this sort of brutal and drawn out form of academic ghosting. And then at the end, feel like you have very few friends but you do have a very nice set of concise opinions about something so just to be clear these are experts these are experts that you send the emails to they're (laughs) not just uh random stakeholders while you're dissing the methodology absolutely and so for this one uh for this uh study there were let me see i lost my place so there were um 30 international experts who were chosen, 17 participated, and as you might expect from a Society of Simulation and Healthcare, uh, Delphi study, most of the experts were North American and there was a smattering of sort of Aussies and Europeans. And look, long story short, they took 74 questions and whittled them down and the most common topics uh, fell into six categories, systems integration, educational methods, assessment, skill acquisition, return on investment, and patient training. And some of the top ranked questions, I won't go through all 10, but I thought they were very reasonable, great kind of big ticket items that we do have to address as a community. So things like what healthcare system level simulation based interventions results in the greatest impact on efficiency, patient safety and patient outcomes. Uh, What is the return on investment in both financial, social and health outcomes or the cost effectiveness of different modalities of SIM? And what research methods are optimal to assess this? What are the effects of simulation-based disease-specific training for patients and their families on patient self-care and outcomes? And what simulation-based strategies are most effective for error-proofing devices, procedures, environment, and healthcare systems? I thought they were a really nice group of questions, Vic. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is the strength of this kind of a process. it's uh, good to remind people of what is important and although we um, made light of those uh, folks who've got all the emails, I mean, they are experts for a reason and they're aware of what's in the literature and what people are asking for and and what uh, CEOs and others are asking for and I think that's why the emphasis on systems-based sim and return on investment because I think these are much more contemporary questions than we had certainly in 2004 and I would venture also in 2010. Uh, reflecting back on those two, though, I kind of wondered when you think about what's the value of something like this, one interesting question would be, does research follow research agendas? And so I wonder if we could look back and think, did people actually pursue some of those agendas that David Garber asked us to do in 2004? And then again, in 2010, did people actually pursue the agendas of David Cook? And 
I don't know, as a best guess, I think a bit. Um, but I think that's probably the better question. Do these kinds of synthesis research agendas set the real agenda or do people just go off on their merry way still thinking this is what interests me? And uh, I think that's probably a harder question to answer. And potentially a more depressing one. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes and no. Uh, I think just, yes, there's, there's reasons why people do research, aren't they? And they're not always because they're the best questions. Yeah, absolutely. No, very true. What I did really like about this article is rather than just presenting those findings, they then go on to sort of try and answer some of those questions as best they can with some research that has already been done, which I thought was really, really nice. Um, so all in all, I thought there was, you know, a, a relatively small number of experts in this study and a, and a reasonably high attrition rate, but it was a, a clearly a very knowledgeable group and uh, clearly a huge amount of work as well for the people putting this together. And it's, and it's really produced a, a lovely set of questions that I think many of us would benefit from reflecting on and uh, actively trying to drive research into that area. Any thoughts? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. All right. Well, quite the potpourri, uh, deception, 360-degree VR headsets, research agendas. Um, thank you, Ben. It's been a lovely April Journal Club. Absolutely. Look forward to doing it again next month. Absolutely. All right. Well, Simulcast listeners, uh, look forward to next month. And this is Victoria Brazel signing off for Simulcast. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. Simulcast. 